It's one of the most thrilling sports of the Winter Olympics. And from the athlete's perspective, one of the most dangerous. Speeds in excess of 140 kilometers per hour or 90 miles per hour. The athlete on that tiny sled is pulling five Gs, so their eight pound head feels like 40 pounds. Elite performers don't need to be told how or to put in the extra work, but they still need coaching and leadership or they can't get here. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand for the national anthem of Canada. Today on Stories and Strategies, elite level performance and what it takes to lead those who perform at a truly exceptional level. My name is Doug Downs. My guest today is Duff Gibson, joining us today from Calgary, Alberta. Hi, Duff. Hi, Doug. And I don't have to ask how the weather is because I have a window and you and I live about a half hour apart. So always a good day in Calgary. <laughs> we both know it's a nice and sunny day out today. Absolutely. Duff, after your undergrad at Western University in London, Ontario, you moved out west here to earn your master's degree in kinesiology. And we did that because that's my Mississippi in this world. I can't, for the life of me, even if I know how, I, I can't pronounce it. That was at the University of Calgary, and you started a 25-year journey in high-performance sport. Your sport was skeleton. You were the world champion in 2004 and the gold medal champ for Canada at the 2006 Games in Torino, Italy. You were the national team head coach for four years, leading six athletes to the podium at the World Cup World Championship level. You launched Dark Horse Athletic in 2016, focused on developing physical literacy, a growth mindset, and inspiring kids to participate for the love of sport. Now, when you were hired as a coach, you were making that move from athlete to coach, which is, if you think about it, just like moving into a leadership role in the corporate world. I know you thought it was your technical knowledge and experience as an athlete that would be of most value, but. Well, that's, that's right. And that's the nature of probably any kind of uh, occupation or venture that's highly specialized, highly, like it's a very specific skill set, how to drive a sled down a hill. So almost anyone hired by any team around the world is someone that I know. It's a small enough community and it's a requirement of the job. And, it's, and specifically, actually, uh, the last four or five, the last number of Olympics have all been hosted on brand new tracks. So learning those tracks in a timely manner is part of the job that I did. I assumed that that would be the case. That never really changed. But what I came to learn is that my role transitioned over time to being less and less about the technical as my 
athletes became more proficient themselves and figured things out for themselves based on their style, not just my suggestions. And it became more and more about helping athletes be in their best state of mental and physical preparedness, specifically for the big events. Okay. And that would be so incredibly personal for each athlete. What did you do to get to know each athlete individually? Well, we had the advantage of the nature of it, the nature, and this is probably true of any sport. Uh, and you could, I'm sure you could say the same for any office or what have you. Uh, well, but more so We're, our sport, we are in the same hotel room away from home, away from our families. We're at the track together. We're when that's done, we eat together. We are roommates together for weeks and weeks at a time. So getting to know the person is something that is facilitated by the nature of what we do. And so what also worked very well to our advantage or my advantage of, as a coach was that my coaching career culminated at the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Some of the athletes, two of the athletes, I actually taught how to slide when I first started my coaching career. So it was a transition. It was an eight-year progression for two of those athletes. So that was, you know, a lot and more than two of them. I was their coach on the development team, which I was the head coach for from when my career ended from 06 to 2010. And then I became the national team head coach basically at the same time that they moved from development athletes to national team athletes. So getting to know them was not the problem. It, that was facilitated very well by our schedule. Yeah, lots of time hanging out. I, I had a client once um, who described it as windshield time. In other words, the time that he and I spent driving from one place to another, and we were working in Newfoundland at the time. So we would drive um, actually up in Labrador, up to, uh, to Churchill Falls, and we'd get six hours of windshield time together. And it's the same. You just talk about anything at any time. You just get to know each other and, and build subconscious levels of trust. Uh, that's an interesting, uh, I might use that in the future. And I, uh, the windshield time, this, the, the quote you just used, because I can remember a time driving across the country. I grew up in Toronto, uh, moved here to go to university. And I, at various times, drove either here or back with other people. And you either really, really like them or you're driving each other crazy by the, you know, by the time you've done 48 hours of driving or whatever it is. And, and that's, you know, good or bad, that's, that's kind of what we experienced on the skeleton team. Cause you would drive, you know, once you're in Europe, a lot of those tracks are a few hours apart. So we would spend at least a few hours. Sometimes it was 15 hours apart. Uh, and so like it or not, you had windshield time. In working with elite performers, in your case, sport, in other cases, it could be, you know, in a work environment, there are various levels of appeal, but logic and emotion, uh, I'll use as the primary two. How do you know when to appeal to their logic and when to appeal to their emotion? Well, again, the, the hours in, I think you would agree, and you're a communications guy, so you know very well that the emotion is the more powerful connection. And so... It, I think everything hinges on, and this is something that I have learned as a parent and as a coach, is that it doesn't matter what your frame of mind, what your mindset is, what your, 
you know, are you a logical person? Are you an emotional person? As the leader, that doesn't matter. It's the person you're trying to communicate with. What's their style? What's their strengths, weaknesses, tendencies? And so I, as a general rule, and this is, this is oversimplifying things, obviously, it's when there's an opportunity to connect on the emotional level, you know that's a more powerful aspect. So if you're respectful of it, I think you need to be there and take advantage of it. And well, maybe take advantage of it is, is, is a poor choice of words there, but to be a part of it, because I've heard so many coaches in recent years say a love, a bond, uh, showing the athlete that you care about them and you're in it, you're in just as invested is a very powerful thing. And I would argue that that, you know, regardless of that, whether the venue is sport or something else, that's a really valid thing. So anytime you can connect on an emotional level, respectfully, that's, that's a good thing. By the time you're coaching athletes at the Olympic level, they're really good, right? They, they, <laughs> they've worked their way up there. They're elite, man. Um, and yet to get to the next level and there's always a next level sometimes if they continue to pursue the path that got them to where they are they're just not going to get there they must undo their learning some call it the unlearning process sometimes what inhibits our ability to learn is we're trying to add it to our current repertoire and we need to tear that down first have you had to lead an athlete through that I have. And it's it's funny, when you're asking the question, I have two or three thoughts going through my mind at the same time. Uh, when someone, if I'm the national team head coach, which I was for a brief period, of, a four-year period of time, there were athletes that I didn't coach for one day until they made the national team. And coaches you know, I'd, I had no role in the development of that athlete, in the development of the mind frame of that athlete. And sometimes, in a few cases, I had athletes who showed up on the national team and they never had to really focus on mindset or never had to really deal with the huge pressure of a world championships or an Olympic games until they got to that point. So you're really starting from scratch in some cases. Number two, is that, you know, when you say that, I can think of three examples where, in my opinion, I was dealing with an athlete where a mindset was impeding them. You've heard the, you know, you've heard the term where some people are their own worst enemy or they can't get out of their own way. Mm -hmm. And I've had this conversation with two or three other Olympic level coaches, and we've all found the same thing. It's very difficult to change someone's mindset when they're 30 something or when they're late 20s or even younger than that, very likely, because it's been decades of getting it to that point and to unlearn something like that. I've actually tried on three occasions without a lot of success. And so ultimately that became a lesson for me about understanding that this is, you know, in a case by case basis, it might not change and therefore I have to step back or I have to measure my words before I become part of the problem. 
if you had to do it a fourth time, another athlete whom you had to lead over the presumptive cliff of unlearning, how would you, what I heard there was, I don't have the recipe for that. So what would you give a try on your fourth attempt? Well, it's all, it's always worth the attempt, but if you are respectful, do you, you're familiar with the legendary basketball coach, Phil Jackson? Of course. Uh, I have a very good friend who works for the San Antonio Spurs and is sort of in that world. And according to him, Phil Jackson is the kind of guy who will say, I just read this book. I think it, I think you would find it very relevant and provide the book. And it would be a book about mindset or psychology or whatever would be relevant. And so I feel that if you're too forceful with a mindset change, then it's, diminished returns. So I like that idea of sort of following the Phil Jackson model of here's something you might be interested. You know, it's it's what a friend of mine describes as a pebble in the shoe, something to just make you think every once in a while, as opposed to, and I, I'm not implying that I did this previously, but as opposed to a, you must think this way, you are your own worst enemy, etc. Another key element of the mental process is accepting responsibility for performance and not blaming others. Uh, it's about understanding your own privilege. This is illustrated in a 2010 study done by social psychologist Paul Piff at UC Berkeley. He took a group of 100 people and in pairs, <laughs> he had them play Monopoly with one another. But the game was rigged. At the flip of a coin, in each game, one participant was chosen to receive twice the amount of startup money, and then they got $400 every time they pass go, so twice the norm, and they got to roll two die instead of one dice, so they moved around the board a lot more. So as these privileged players played the game, they would universally start talking more, blah, 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 blah. They're really into it. Aggressively smacking their game pieces around the board when they had their turn to move. They're all oh, move three. I get to move three spaces like that. They talked a lot more about how much game money they had. Hey, I understood you had just one. Are you serious? Yeah. I have three. <laughs> and even, this is amazing. Eight more of the complimentary pretzels. Okay. And here's what I think was really, really interesting is that at the end of the 15 minutes, we asked the players to talk about their experience during the game. And when the rich players talked about why they'd inevitably won in this rigged game of Monopoly, <laughs> they talked about what they'd done to buy those different properties and earn their success in the game. And they became far less attuned to all those different features of the situation, including that flip of a coin that had randomly gotten them into that privileged position in the first place. And that's a really, really incredible insight into how the mind makes sense of advantage. What I learned a great deal of as a coach was the importance of the psychology. So I have, it's, it's become a, a great interest of mine. And so that's, I came across Paul Piff years ago and it's led me into, you know, various rabbit holes over the year. But 
what what he's talking about is a subcategory of something called self-serving bias, which is one of the biases that we all have, which manifests at different times and in different ways. But typically it could be described as if I do well, I'm proud to tell you that it's because of something that I did. But if I do poorly, it's I blame it on other factors. What I experienced was that that works in the opposite way as well. And when athletes aren't doing well, they don't focus on as much on what they need to do to improve. They tend to spend some time complaining that other people are doing things contrary to the rules. In other words, if I'm doing poorly, it's someone else's fault. Um, I know you're in the process of writing a book. Um, Tell us about the book. Well, the book is really about my 25 years in high performance sport, but there are implications for youth sports, certainly for coaches, but it's on the one end of the spectrum, it's about how to deal with pressure at an Olympic games. On the other end, it's how do you coach? How do you foster a growth mindset in a 10 year old versus a fixed mindset, which will more likely drive them out of the sport before any kind of potential can be realized. It's, it's sort of in response to why I started Dark Horse in the first place, which was coming from the Sochi Olympics, coming from the highest level of amateur sport, and then watching, you know, my youngest son's hockey coach grab a kid by the jersey and rip him off the ice at age eight, you know, and it's, and watching that and going, thinking to myself, at the Olympic level, we would never have tolerated that. We literally would have sent someone home and said, don't come back because we would see it as we're all on the same page. Coach, athlete, support staff at the Olympic level, we're all on the same page. We're all striving for the same goal. But yelling at a kid and the kid didn't know what was going on and the coach grabbed him by the jersey and yanked him off the ice. And my son, who was eight at the time on the way home, said, man, coach takes this way too seriously. What was it about that environment? I thought to myself, that is perfectly obvious to an eight-year-old that a grown-up doesn't get. And it's, so that's why instead of, you know, we have something called that has been referred to as the professionalization of youth sport, which is more and earlier. And I just want, the point of Dark Horse is to remind kids why we do it in the first place. It's for fun. The most successful athletes I have ever met And being an amateur athlete or former amateur athlete and coach in Calgary, I've met all the ones that you've watched win medals on TV. I very likely know them personally just because of my location here. And there's a common thread in terms of a mindset. And it's a passion and a love for what you do. You can take that out of a kid really easily. Uh, Or you can inspire, you know, a very valuable, very successful uh, mindset in a young person. And so that's why I started Dark Horse. Duff, I really appreciate the time we were able to spend here today. Thank you. Well, thanks, Doug. It's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. I, I get the feeling these things we could, you and I could talk for hours, like, uh, like we did on our first meeting. Uh, but thank you very much for the invitation. We'll have a couple of celebratory pops if we, when we get <laughs> together next. <laughs> 
If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Duff Gibson, you can email him at duffgibson at iCloud.com. That's in the show notes. If you liked what you heard today, we're hoping you choose to subscribe to Stories and Strategies and receive updated episodes automatically. We'd love it if you'd followed us on Twitter at comms underscore podcast. Also hoping you choose to follow and rate this podcast on any directory you're listening on. And would you do us a favor, recommend this podcast to one friend. If you have an idea for an episode or you just want to tell us something, send us a note at info at jgrcommunications.com. Thanks for listening.